can you tell me what you did Tuesday? Not all at once. I don't know about you, but if I had to go back further in my week without my phone out looking at my calendar, I'm not sure that I could tell you how I spent the days. I know what I did yesterday, but it seems so often in life, the mundane of our lives kind of crowds out any real recognition of, unless it's like a big event, like Thanksgiving's coming, right? That kind of stands out. Christmas is coming. That kind of stands out. But like, what about last Tuesday? We are going to see from the text this morning that we need to train ourselves to see God's work in the mundane using the least of us and even his work in new beginnings. That's kind of the overview of three chapters. Now, I'm a little intimidated and I'm sure you are all wondering how this is going to go. If you had uh, the prayer or the sermon card and you saw today that we were going to work through 1 Samuel chapter 9, 10, and 11, you were probably thinking, oh boy, buckle up, bring your Snickers, and uh, be close to an exit so you can run out to the restroom. You know, we're going to be here a while. Hopefully that won't be our experience today. It will be a fresh look at God's Word. What takes place in this passage, in these three chapters, not only shows us how the daily grind can obscure God's work in our lives, but we can also see in chapter 11 how the joy of new beginnings can obscure who really gave Israel the victory. So if you took time to read it, now we're here in 1 Samuel chapter 9, and if you took time to read through this passage this week, good for you. And I'm depending on that each week so that you are prepared. And in larger chunks like this, we're not going to spend all morning reading through three chapters. So you see it on page 231 in the Bibles that are provided. If you don't have one, those are a gift from our church to you. I hope that you'll take that home with you and make that a part of your regular routine to read God's word and and enjoy that free copy of the scriptures. So I'm going to I'm going to give you two big thoughts And then we're going to work through the passage, okay? Chapter 9 through the end of chapter 10. I want to call us to see that God works through the mundane routines of our lives and he uses the least for his service. I'm going to say that again. Chapters 9 and 10 show us as God chooses Saul, as he is chasing lost donkeys, that God works through the mundane routines of our lives and he uses the least for his service. And then as we get to chapter 10 or chapter 11, we're going to see a little bit different thing. That God is the cause for the joy in our new beginnings. So if you're stuck in one of those two places, maybe you just moved to Rapid City and you're excited because, hey, it's wintertime in South Dakota and you're ready to see snow like me. And then that big storm we all missed somehow last week and we got a little dusting. You know, I'm like, okay, well, maybe next week we'll get a storm. Now, I've realized some of you don't like winter and mm, some of you don't like snow. I'm a little twisted that way. It is exciting to me. Or maybe you've been here in Rapid City for a long time and you just feel like you're plodding day after day. It's a grind. 
I think God's word in these three chapters has a message, a word for each and every one of us, no matter where we are in our lives. So let's look how God works through the mundane routines of our lives and uses the least, those things or people that we might overlook for his service. As you look at chapter 9, you see that there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Baroth, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And what we have from the rest of chapter 9 is Saul's journey, a really long, circuitous route. He takes through the lands of Ephraim and he goes into these different cities and territories looking for these lost donkeys. Now, to us, maybe if you're a rancher, you know the value of livestock. For those of us that grew up, Um, in a less than ranching life, we may be saying like, okay, we'll put some signs up around town. Anybody see my lost donkey? Bring him back home. But this was real money and real value, both in productivity and in possession. It was, uh, we're told Kish was a wealthy guy to lose several donkeys. Now you don't know if he had 20 and six of them got out. But uh, obviously, there was a need to go and find them. And so Saul tracks off with his young servant, and they go and look. And as they're looking, it's, we're told that uh, they, they kind of come to a point where Saul begins to get worried that his dad's worried. You remember that? You see that there in uh, verse, what is it, verse 5. Saul, after days of walking and not finding them, He says to his servant, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Now, his servant tells him that there's this city that they're in. And if you didn't notice the land of Zuff that they had entered into, that should kind of, in our minds, that goes all the way back to early in 1 Samuel when we're told about Elkanah, who came from the land of Zuff. So the author of 1 Samuel is kind of like secretly telling us that Saul, in his journeys of looking for donkeys on another bad day to be Saul, has come to the land, the hometown of Samuel, and Saul doesn't know where he is. So his servant says, there's a man of God in this city. He's a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. Let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And in that day, there was a tradition that you would give a gift to a prophet, a man of God, um, as a token of your appreciation. It wasn't buying a vote, as it were, or buying some kind of vision, but that was the gift. And so the servant, when Saul says, I've got nothing, the servant says, I'll help you out. Saul searches. They go up to the hill. They meet some young women in verse 11 who are drawing out water, and, and they ask, is the seer here? Young women, they tell him, yes, he is. He's just ahead of you. There's a feast day. And so he's getting ready to start that ceremony. You're going to find him as you go into the city before he gets to the high place. 
people will not eat until he a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be my prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And so what we have here is the story where the rest of the chapter on into chapter 10 and verse 16 is Saul in Ramah with Samuel. Samuel brings him to the feast. He gives him the, the portion of food that was set behind a leg and a, and a thigh of an animal. It was the priestly portion. So here's Saul, an unknown person in Ramah, and his servant who are sitting at the head of the table for this big feast. Nobody else knows who they are, but Samuel's got this all set up in advance. He's made all the preparations. They bring out the big portion. Everybody knows something's going on, but who is this guy, and what is the something that's taking place? So the story, the narrator, is building a little tension here. And what we see overall, as, as he lays out all these nuances of Saul in his travels for lost donkeys as well as his interactions with the unnamed women who are going out to gather water, the guests at the feast, and the prophets whom Samuel will tell him he will meet on his way back home. All these unnamed people show up in a story. I think one of the things we can draw from this is that in God's story, ordinary people play a part. We see it in the New Testament as Saul, uh, I'm sorry, Paul, a different Saul, as Paul and Peter travel around in the book of Acts, they're encountering all kinds of people. Some were given their names. They appear once in Scripture. Others remain unnamed. But in all reality, God works His will out in this world through ordinary people like you and me. We don't have to have a title. We don't have to have a position. We're just followers of Jesus. And we will be used by God as he uses us to help people know him, help people follow him, and help care for those who do know and follow him. Don't allow yourself to be deceived into thinking that if your life is boring right now, yet another day of chasing donkeys, that God is not at work. What, what goes on in the rest of this passage is that Samuel tells Saul, your donkeys, in verse 20, that were lost three days ago. I mean, walking three days. How far could you get in three days walking from Rapid City? I don't know. But he says, don't set your mind on them, for they have been found. Notice, Saul never found them, but somebody else did. And then Samuel says something quite unexpected. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Who is Israel anxious to meet? Who has Israel set their hearts upon? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And to this Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite? From the least of the tribes of Israel, and is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Samuel, the rest of nine is Samuel telling him, uh, bringing him into the feast. They eat together, and then the next morning they arise. And Samuel says at the end of the chapter 9, verse 27, Saul, send your servant on a little head. I want to talk to you, just the two of us. 
I want to make known to you the word of God. And chapter 10 continues the story. Samuel took a flask of oil. He poured it on his head and kissed him. And he said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. And you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And then Samuel gives Saul a whole list of things in chapter 10 here of things that he will experience as confirming signs to Saul that indeed God is doing this. And it's not an old man who has his ambitions, but it is the hand of God. You're going to meet people. They're going to be carrying certain articles. They're going to share some things with you. You're going to be passing this way. You will then be prophesying with the prophets. And the Spirit... Of the Lord will rush upon you, Saul says in verse 6, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And then verse 8, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And notice what verse 9 says. When he, Saul, turned to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. Here is Saul doing an everyday kind of thing. And he's trying to find lost donkeys. And what ends up happening is Israel's king is found. Israel's king is set apart. And what Saul does as he leaves, he experiences God changing his heart. And not only that, but then Saul sees and experiences every one of the signs that Samuel told him would happen. Even we're given a little expansion. They, they don't tell us about the, the guys carrying the goats and the bread that's given to him and things like that. But they do talk about the prophecy in verses 10 and 11. He comes back to his hometown, Gibeah. Behold, a group of, group of prophets met him and the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among, also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Notice his uncle comes to him and his servant in verse 14. Where did you go? Well, we went to seek the donkeys. And when we, we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. So does Saul have aspirations of kingship? Does Saul's family see him as a leader? Or is this mild curiosity? You saw Samuel? I don't know. But we can see something here in Saul's response to his uncle in verse 16. He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found... But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. And so we see that God was working in the routine life of Saul to set him apart as king over Israel. 
And for us who may get caught up in the routines of our life, we need to understand that God is not calling us to kingship, but he is using us where he's placed us. Now, as you look at verses 17 through 19 of chapter 10, Saul confronts Israel over their sin. He called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Saul calls this national meeting of the people in Mizpah. He repeats the Exodus story of God's redemption and deliverance, not only from Egypt, but also from all other kingdoms that had oppressed them. But Israel continued rejecting God. They insisted on having a king, which, as we saw in chapter 8, was not outside God's will, but their motivation was sinful. They wanted to be like everybody else. More is going to come on this in chapter 12. But here's the point. Why did Samuel take this great opportunity where everybody was together and what we read in nominating or appointing the new king and his national unveiling day? Why did he, why did he kind of like give them a jab? Because we have no record at this point of Israel confessing their sins. Samuel was obeying God, and yet, once again, God is calling Israel to cry out to him in repentance, not just when they are in need. I think sometimes we're like that, right? We get a little distress. Oh, God, help us. But when we're overtaken in our sin, we're much slower to confess that. God's been at work the entire time. You wouldn't think that as you read through chapters 9 and 10. But you get to this point and now Saul is revealed to all Israel in verses 20 through 24. God chose Saul by lot. This is a common practice in the Old Testament to determine God's will in the simple yes or no matters. The high priest would carry in his breastplate this little uh, pouch that had the Urim and the Thummim in it. And it was used... As you might remember, Achan in uh, the Jericho event where he stole items and by lot they determined that it was him who had done it. Once again, we're told of Saul's lineage. We're reminded of it. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was of the Matrite clan and the family of Kish. And it again reinforces the idea that not only does God work through the boring, mundane days of our lives... But he also uses the least among us. Now, here's three quick comments on verses 22, 23, and 24. In verse 22, we read and find out that Israel is so dependent on God, he must intervene in even the simplest tasks. Twelve tribes shrunk down to one. One tribe shrunk down to one clan. One of all the clans, we have now one family in that clan, And that family is shrunk down to one man. God has to tell them where to find that guy. Where Saul, he's hiding in the baggage. 
I mean, you're traveling to Mizpah for a national convention. You're going to bring your wives, your kids. You're going to bring food. You're going to need animals to haul that, all the supplies, the clothing, the tents, etc. Saul is hidden himself back there. I think it's a little bit ironic. Saul was sent to look for temporarily lost donkeys. And the people are intent on making him king, had to look for a bashful and reluctant Saul who temporarily couldn't be found. Verse 23, once again, Saul's kingly stature is mentioned. We see it in verse 2 of chapter 9 and here in verse 23. He was impressive. He was more handsome than any other man. He was taller than anyone else. There literally was no one like him among all the people. So what do we see here? Israel asked for a king, and God didn't give him a slough. He didn't give him a bum. He he gave him the best of the people, a guy who was presentable. He was good-looking. He was a big, tall, strong man. He looked like a king. Looking at verse 24, Samuel reminds Israel that God chose Saul. Now, we just did the whole lot system, folks. We just did the Urim and the Thummim, and we saw of the 12 tribes that Benjamin was chosen. Of those, it was the Matarite clan, and of that, it was the family of Kish. And of Kish's family, it was Saul. But don't make a mistake, people. God has chosen this man as your king. It wasn't by accident. Israel had asked for a king. God granted them. God chose Saul directly. We're told that in verse 16 of chapter 9 and again here. The people shout their approval. Long live the king. And my, how this ought to remind us of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Where they're shouting his praises. They're laying out garments before him coming. We see that in Matthew chapter 21. But look what happens next. In verse 25, Samuel says the king... Israel's king must lead God's people according to God's word. And so Samuel takes a scroll and he writes down all the duties, the rights and duties of the kingdom. He tells the people those things and then he writes it down and he lays it up before the Lord. Saul and the people are now entered into this new relationship and the boundaries are clear and the responsibilities are clear. And if you think back to chapter 8, Verses 9 through 18, where Samuel had warned Israel, when you ask for a king, here's what the kings of the nations are like. They're despots. They're they're heavy-handed. They will extort, extract, they will confiscate, they will demand. In contrast, God's vice regent ought to rule in a positive way. He ought to be benevolent, according to Deuteronomy 17. Israel's kings were to rule under God's leadership and his law, which, if they did that, it was going to prevent abuse and corruption. And what's there but flourishing? The flourishing of God's people and the glory of God's name. And what we see also is that Israel's king is under the authority of God. Now the question is, will Saul act like a pagan king or will he be wise, godly, and benevolent as God is? And again, we're reminded of the simple fact that all people need God's word. Kings as well as people. Let's take a little sidebar. 
Exodus chapter 20. If you would, jump with me over there. I want to show you something. Because I want to lean in a little bit here on the necessity of God's word. And whether it's kings or commoners, we all need God's word. In Exodus 20, last year, I was preaching through the book of Exodus. And over and over again, I could clearly see points that that were new to me of God's grace in how he worked and moved with his people. So you think of the Old Testament, you think of the law. You think of the New Testament, you think of the good guy, Jesus, who kind of freed us from the law and the burdens of the law. But actually, a careful reading of the Old Testament, you will see grace all over the place. God didn't wait till Jesus come, came to, to show grace. Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 2. God is reminding Israel, if you're heading and your Bible says the Ten Commandments, then it's, here's the introduction. Here's the reason why God can give commandments to Israel. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. What is God doing there? What we read of Paul saying in Romans 12, you're bought with a price. You are not your own, but you have been redeemed. You're to be sanctified. You're to be growing. You are to live as a Christian for Jesus, right? So here is, in the Old Testament, God saying the very same thing to his people. Hey, folks, remember this. When you were slaves, I'm the one who rescued you. When you were in bondage and in prison and affliction, I'm the one who heard, I'm the one who cared, I'm the one who came, I'm the one who saved you. Grace came first. Now notice what follows after that grace is all the Ten Commandments. Now, we often just look at the Ten Commandments and we forget the fact that God showed grace to Israel first before he gave them his law. He bestowed upon them favor that neither they earned nor deserved. Neither did Abraham for that matter. God was faithful to his covenant because that's who he is. And everything God did to deliver Israel was the result of his love, his faithfulness for his own glory. Now notice what follows in verses 3 through 17. Since God has freed and rescued Israel, he then calls them to obey in order to enjoy more freedom. He used physical deliverance as an occasion for physical obedience. And we know that there's a spiritual truth at play here as well. The same is true for us today as Christians. Our obedience in Christ comes after experiencing the grace. You can't earn God's favor. You can only rejoice in it. We've been delivered from sin so that we can enjoy freedom in Christ. Not a freedom to sin, but a freedom to do what is right. You see, King Jesus, when he saves sinners, he calls them to live a life of purity of mind, of speech, and of deeds. To have relationships that are godly and respectful. We obey the law as Christians after being set free from sin. And God promises that obeying the law will actually protect us from idolatry, from murder, 
from the cancer of bitterness, from lust, from rage, and every sin. We don't keep the law in order to earn favor from God. We have been given favor from God, and thus we respond with gratitude and grateful obedience. You can't unhook these two things. Christ has set us free from sin and the curse. So this afternoon, maybe you want to read Romans chapter 12 through 15, or Galatians 5 and 6, or Ephesians 4 through 6, or Colossians 3 and 4, or you could read the entire letter of James. They all speak of the fact that grace precedes obedience, not the other way around. Why am I making this point? Because there's something that seems to be lacking in the understanding of many churches today where they emphasize a gospel that makes no demands and it leads people to sin. Now, I'm not saying that we do things in order to get from God. We've already received in Christ all we ever need. But what we see in the text that God's law was given to God's king in order that he might rightly know how to live and lead God's people. That means that God's word has truth we need to live our lives. And when we look at the law as a restricting, binding influence, we have failed to understand that that law is intended to bring life to us. That in fact, in Christ, we have been made righteous and sanctified, we've been justified. We, in our discovery class this morning, working through our statement of faith as a church, we believe in God's regenerating work, His leading us to repentance and faith, God's electing, saving, gracious, sanctifying, justifying work. And out of that flows a heart of joy and gratitude where we then obey. The gospel does have demands, it does. And we ought not to shrink back from that. We don't get to live our lives. Okay, I got Jesus in my pocket, and now I can do whatever I want. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity as taught in the scriptures. Now, we look at verses 10, uh, 26 and 27. Going back to our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Don't reject God's choice of the least. As you come to the end of chapter 10, were you surprised after long live the king or followed up with some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? They despised him and brought him no present, but Saul held his peace. Now, this makes sense. If you go back to chapter 10 and look at verses 11 and 12, when Saul showed up to Gibeah, and the Spirit comes on him, and he starts prophesying with the prophets, there's this rhetorical question that they ask, is Saul also a prophet? I mean, that's supposed to lead you to, no, he's not. Saul's Kish's son. Like, their family is like the smallest family in the whole tribe. Their clan, they're not even leaders in the tribe. Saul, what? Come on. Like, who's the father of prophets anyway? I mean, they are, he is rejected by his own people in that sense. And what does that also remind us of a prophet who would come years later who would also be rejected and mocked as, he's the carpenter's son? He shows up at Nazareth. Man, he went away. He went away to Galilee. He grew up. He thinks he's a big man now. Look at the way he's teaching in the synagogue. 
Where did he get this authority? We know his mother, his sisters, and his father, and his brothers. They're here with us. Who is this Jesus? With a welcome that Saul received when he returned to Gibeah, is it any wonder that he withheld the rest of his words to his uncle in verse 16? He's not being honored there, and now on the day of his inauguration, he's not being honored yet again. They, these men in verse 27, not only reject Saul, they reject his office. You see, the establishment of a monarchy threw everything into a tizzy. It, it was a threat to those who had power. Even though God had anointed Saul with the Spirit and set him apart as Israel's king, they rejected the idea of a king. You see, when God does something, when he chooses to set people apart for his work, it's always going to be divisive. This idea that somehow we can please the world and please God at both, and we can kind of bring them together and reconcile them, it is an impossibility. It's a tension we are wrong to try to live with or manage or resolve. We are to choose Christ and let the chips fall where they may. We are to follow him in humility and with love for people, but we ought not to conflict ourselves with trying to resolve these things. It will naturally be a division. Jesus says this over and over in the Gospels. Your love for me will almost make it feel like you love nobody else. Well, that's paradigm shifting in a culture that honors their parents. So here we see once again, a similarity. Now, Saul is not a type of Jesus. I'm not saying that, but there's just similarities. What Saul experienced in part, Jesus experienced on a greater. Jesus said this in Luke 12, 51. Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. Jesus, like Saul, was rejected. Whether it was his time in Nazareth, in John 6, 42. But you think about this even today. I mean, like it's 2,000 years later. What can Jesus do for me? I mean, we're in the age of smartphones, cryptocurrency. We're in the age of wokeness. What can Jesus actually bring to the table in my marriage or in my following, my life? How can he improve my situation? How can he better it? Wasn't he a Jew from like eons ago? And so we dismiss him. We reject him. Now let me just say this. Those who reject Jesus today share the same mindset as those who rejected Saul in that day. They fail to understand that it is God, not human beings, who saves. And they don't think they need saving. So if that's you, friend, you're here today visiting with us, let me just say, Jesus is the answer to all your questions. He is the hope of your life. He is the future. So you will either embrace him as Lord now, or you will bow before him as a ruler in that day, and then you will be cast out from him because you've rejected him. 
This isn't a message that we're like happy and joyful to bring, except for the fact that there's good news with the gospel, right? There's bad news comes first. We're sinners estranged from God who've willfully chosen to rebel against him in a plethora of ways. And the good news is that God has provided for us, showing grace to us that we could not earn or didn't deserve in Christ so that he could reconcile us to himself. And that requires repentance and faith, a confession and understanding. The Spirit has to move your heart. You can say words that are empty, but to have your life really changed, that's a God thing. And it's our prayer that you would experience that. That's, that's what makes up South Canyon Baptist Church. Imperfect people, both before Christ and after Christ, who love Him and are seeking to follow Him. We invite you to ask more questions about that. See me afterward or talk to any of the elders that you'll see on the back of your bulletin. We'd be happy to talk with you about the gospel. Now let's close up chapter 11. This is really fast because it's pretty straightforward, right? We've seen that God uses the mundane things in our lives and even the least, those that we would say are not significant like Saul, for his honor and his glory and his service. And now we get to the point where we see that God, not Saul, is the real cause for joy in these new beginnings. As you look at chapter 11, there's a guy named Nahash. He's an Ammonite. He's a king. He comes and besieges the, the, the city of Jabesh-Gilead. And he is going to, without reading it, uh, verses 1 through 4, he comes to humiliate, to mock, and to enslave these people. He is not content with them in their terms. We will serve you. You can be our master. We will give you money every year, and we will give you of our crops. He says, no, I want to humiliate you by taking out the right eye of every one of your men, and I want to, I want to abuse you, and I want it to be known that it is me who has done this. We shouldn't be surprised, again, that we are mocked and hated by the world. Jesus predicted this would happen. As they treated me, so they will treat you. The good news is that we can face any antagonism because we have a relationship with Jesus. This is the recurring theme. To know Christ is to know the grace and the peace that passes all understanding. So what happens is the men of Jabesh Gilead get a little reprieve. They tell the king, uh, we'll ask for help from our brethren in the Israelite community. And if none comes, then uh, we will come out to you as slaves. You can do what you plan to do us. Word comes to Saul in Gibeah, verse 5 through 11. And God's anointed and appointed king brings salvation to God's people. Saul issues a threat. He cuts up the yoke of oxen that he had been plowing behind. He sends out those animals' body parts to all of Israel, and he says, if you guys aren't here by this day, then this is going to happen to all your livestock. And then all the nation gathers together in a mass that we haven't seen yet at this point in the book of 1 Samuel, and then Saul leads them in an early morning attack, and it utterly destroys the Ammonites. So we see that this king did exactly what Israel had hoped he would do. If you go back to chapter 8 and verse 20, that he would go out before us and fight our battles. Israel got the king they asked for in appearance and in ability. They wanted a hero 
and in all reality, God gave them one. So in chapter 9, we see that he's anointed by Samuel. In chapter 10, he's chosen by Lot. And then here in chapter 15, he is confirmed by public affirmation. As you look, then the people, uh, Samuel brings the people back into the camp. And they renew the kingdom in Gilgal. Verses 16 and 17, or I'm sorry, yes, no, 13 and 14. And then all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Finally, he's won over his detractors. And you, you hear and read all this, and it just sounds like, wow, it's just all happily ever after, right? We've come to the point in the story, all the tension has been resolved. Who will be the first king? And how will he respond to pressures of leading? And we see a great victory. It kind of reminds me of like what happens when I hear Michael Buble singing Feeling Good. Or uh, Louis Armstrong, What a Wonderful World. Like yeah, I just kind of like feel a little better. It's a little pick-me-up, you know? We're at this point where Israel is celebrating their victory and their new king, and their future looks bright. But I think the writer of 1 Samuel has something here for us that we may not see on the surface, and this is where we're going to conclude. He wants us to celebrate God, not the instrument, nor the outcome. Okay? God uses mundane things and ordinary people in his service. And then when we have a new beginning that's glorious and beautiful, God wants us to celebrate him, not the outcome and not the instrument. And here's how I come to that conclusion. We can't allow human glory to obscure God's worth. If you look at verses 1 through 13... I'm going to use a term called a chiasm. This is like a literary term in the Bible. And basically, if you, you kind of think of math, is this greater than or less than? I don't know. Depends on where you're sitting, right? I'll ask Terrence later today. Uh, so a chiasm is a structure in literature that builds to a point. It's shaped in a way where thoughts build toward that point and then away from that point so that that point stands alone. So a display would have been great. I didn't have this done in time to do that. It's a confession, okay? But here, if you look in your Bible, verses 1 and 2, and then you look at verses 11, 12, and 13, you see in 1 and 2 an evil king who comes to threaten, oppress, and destroy. And he's contrasted with a good king who delivers and protects. Then if you look at verses um, 3 and verse 10, you have the people of Jabesh-Gilead who respond to the Amorites with, we will come out to you, if no one helps in verse 3, to, hey, tomorrow we will come out to you in verse 10 because they know help is coming. And then in verse 4, messengers bring bad news to Gibeah and Saul. But look at what happens in verse 9. Messengers are bringing good news to the people of Jabesh-Gilead. You look at verse 5, and that's paired. Saul's question and the people's answer is paired with Saul's message arriving in Jabesh-Gilead and the people's rejoicing there. 
So what is left out? It's verse 6. Everything is pointing. Verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 are pointing to verse 6. And verses 7 through 10 are wor- or 13 are working their way back from verse 6. What stands alone, look at verse 6. It says this. If I can find it in my Bible. Sorry, I didn't highlight it. So they come to him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. God basically turns Saul into a super judge. His spirit empowerment is like Samson before him and other judges, It was a special grace given by God to enable him to do God's work and lead God's people. And what we see in this text is summarized well by one commentator who says this, The Spirit turned a shy, hesitating farmer into a super judge. So here is God working through an instrument, producing an outcome, and people are celebrating Saul, but the author wants us to know after the fact Israel was wrong for celebrating Saul. Israel was supposed to see that God works through ordinary people in ordinary ways to do great things for his glory. That's the whole point of this. And we are promised a bright future. We could go back to the book of Judges as it concludes with the interesting connection between Gibeah and Jabesh-Gilead. Gibeah was a place in which a woman was horribly abused and murdered by those men. And then Benjamin, the tribe in which Gibeah was a part of, refused to give up those evildoers. And so what turns out in the last three chapters of the book of Judges is the horrible, one of the darkest points in Israel's history to that point. All ten tribes surround the Benjaminites, and because they wouldn't hand over these evil men, civil war erupts. And the end of that is Benjamin is decimated. They're almost completely wiped out. 600 men are left. And what are they going to do? Because all of the Israelites said, we will never give our daughters to the sons of Benjamin in marriage. So what are they going to do now? They're mourning the fact that God has wiped out one of their tribes. And then they do a census and they figure out, hey, guess who didn't show up when we called the national meeting to figure out this problem? It was the people of Jabesh-Gilead. No one came from there. So then what happens is sin upon sin. Israel then attacks the town of Jabesh-Gilead, kills every man, woman, and child there, only leaving back virgins. And they give those women to the men of Benjamin in order to preserve the tribe. So what happens hundreds of years later is that Saul is, he comes from a town that has an evil and dark history. And yet God uses him to bring light and deliverance to the very people that because of his forefather's sin cost them their families, he is now a savior to them. Let me just say this. You need to understand that God is in the business of redefining people, of changing people so profoundly that he can take darkness and turn it into light, that he can use commoners in uncommon ways. That he uses the ordinary grind of our days to bring himself glory. That's our God, and he does this over and over and over again. And let me just plead with you, don't miss his work in your own life. 
You can count today all the ways. Think back how God has provided for you in hard times and in hard places, giving you strength. He's giving you counsel through brothers and sisters. He's giving you his word. He's giving you an enduring and abiding spirit. You see, Israel had a king who needed the spirit. The church has the divine king who gives the spirit. If that ain't preaching, I don't know what is. Jesus is so good to us. The spirit that he gives us is not temporary. It abides forever. Celebrate God's work in your ordinary life and rejoice in him for the new beginnings that he gives. Lord, we just thank you for this truth. Shape us around it. Help us, Lord, to see how good you are in redeeming us in calling us into your service and into your ministry. I pray, God, that you would raise up men and women from this church who would be able to go into places with the gospel and boldness in your spirit to witness to people, to help disciple people. We thank you, Lord, that your faithful mercies are new every morning and that you use servants in service to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We praise you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.